Once you have decided to move beyond simply supplementing your cannabis substrate with bottled synthetics and you find your way to living soils, things can get pretty messy. Compost, wildcrafted nutrient teas, and fermentations all have smells that are very, um, potent, shall we say. I wouldn't say that many of them stink, but they do smell intense, exceptionally strange, and very wildly alive. Working with organic and living inputs is a strong reminder that life begets life. It is in that spirit that I offer today's episode entitled, Dead Bodies and Poop. If you want to learn more about cannabis health, business, and technique efficiently and with good cheer, I encourage you to subscribe to our newsletter. Every week, you'll receive a new podcast episode delivered right to your inbox, along with commentary on a couple of the most important news items from the week and videos, too. Don't rely on social media to let you know when a new episode is published. Sign up for the updates to make sure you don't miss an episode. You're listening to Shaping Fire, and I'm your host, Shango Los. My guest this week is Tad Hussey. Tad is a living soils educator and owner of Keep It Simple Organics. KIS Organics is an edible nursery, production greenhouse, outdoor preschool, organic hydro shop, and online living soil inputs seller based in Redmond, Washington. Tad is also host of the Cannabis Cultivation and Science podcast. Tad's a sought-after speaker on every facet of living soils, and we're thrilled to have him here today to talk about animal inputs, from bones and blood to poop and flesh. One last note. This week's episode simply does not sound as good as our episodes usually do. When setting up for the interview, I missed that my side of the conversation was being recorded by my laptop microphone and not my fancy studio microphone. So there's a lot more echo than usual. Um, I mean, it's tolerable. It's very tolerable. But if this is your first time listening to Shaping Fire, I don't want you to think that this is how it normally sounds. Um, Luckily, Tad does most of the talking during the episode, and his microphone sounds just fine. So thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Hey, welcome to the show, Tad. Oh, man, I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, I'm really glad that you could uh, peel off some time for us. So let's get right into it. You know, we're going to be talking about a lot of animal inputs that can be used when growing cannabis or anything today. Um, But, you know, you have taught me that one of the important things is to always start with a soil test. So even though this is not a soil test show, would you just give a quick summary of why people should have their soil looked at so they understand where they're starting with? Yeah, I appreciate you giving me a minute to talk about this because I think it's really important. Uh, One thing I want to make clear is that there's different types of soil tests and they all give slightly different results. Uh, There's Malik 3 tests, Bray Olson, a bunch of different types of tests. And so whatever test you go with, you need to keep testing with the same lab in order to get consistent results. But this is really the foundation that allows you to use a lot of these different nutrients appropriately. Because if you know what's in your soil, then you can amend that soil to make up for any deficiencies or excesses. So I think soil soil testing is really important. Uh, And the one that we like the best is uh, Logan Lab standard soil test. It's like $25. So it's it's not terribly expensive. And that'll tell you everything that's in the soil, including your trace minerals. Right on. Cool. And so based on the results from that, you'll know what you need to do to bring your soil into the the range you want it to be in for whatever you happen to be growing. Yeah, they'll help you with interpretation. And uh, if if they can't do that, you know, I'm available or there's other people in the industry that can, you know, help you understand those tests. And then you can use that information to utilize some of the other things that we're going to talk about today. Right on. Cool. The other thing while I've got you here I want to ask you is one of the questions I get asked a lot. People ask me what the the three numbers, uh, the NPK percentages on the front of nutrients mean. Um, Why don't you you go ahead and field that question for folks who may be listening to the show new to fertilizers? 
Sure. Well, I think you kind of said it there. So those, <laughs> those three numbers, yes, those are your nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium percentages. And those are required. Uh, there's you know, state law here in Washington, Oregon, or whatever state you're in. And those numbers will tell you what percentage of that nutrient is going to be guaranteed in that product. Now, you have to be a little bit careful in the cannabis industry because if they put 555 on the label, that means there's at least 5% you know, nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium, but there could be more. So with the things that we're going to talk about today, things like uh, these different animal manures and meals, they tend to be, um, they tend to be not overinflated. But in the cannabis industry, you have to be careful because someone may say, you know, my proprietary nitrogen source is better than another one that's also 555. Well, it could be because they're putting in excess. Those numbers just give you the minimums that's required, and that's what the state tests for. Yeah, right on. Good. That's a good point. So um, I want to thank you, too, for being willing to come on a show called Dead Bodies and Poop. You know, um, uh, uh, I think that I've been thinking about these kind of nutrients for a long time. I've been thinking about it as, you know, the, the animals give give everything so that we can grow our cannabis in these examples. And, you know, some of the things like especially the feces and stuff, the animal gives off. But some of these things like our first example, insect frass, it's everything. So insect frass is something that was new to me uh, just this summer and I used it for the first time and I saw incredible results. Um, so, so why don't we start there? Why don't you tell us about insect frass? Yeah, you know, it's something that's relatively new to the industry too. Uh, and something that I didn't know a lot about five years ago. But yeah, essentially the frass is the waste or excess of what's left over uh, in the process. For example, the source that we have is up in Canada and they're growing out black soldier flies. And black soldier flies, they don't have mouths. The larvae will eat just about anything. And then what is left over in that process, they're calling the frass after everything um, that the insect has eaten. So think of it like insect compost, more or less. But the great thing about it is you're getting that NPK, you're getting calcium, magnesium. It's a slower release source of these nutrients, and it's really high in chitin. And people talk about chitin uh, as something that's really important because it's related to, uh, there's some research that shows it supports systemic acquired resistance, or SAR, which is shown to help reduce or suppress certain pests or fungal pathogens. It's, uh, it's a specific enzyme that is created by these bacteria, fungi, and other microorganisms that are specific for breaking down the chitin that you would see in, you know, in insect frass, in in uh, crab or crustacean meal, things with shells. Right on, right on. So is what is you know the idea of the insect frass? I picture it as just being a bunch of dried up soldier fly carcasses that are then put through a grinder and comes out as a powder. Um, is that is, I mean, is that a good uh, picture of that? And, and do they choose soldier flies because they particularly have got these healthy nutrients in their bodies, or or, or is insect frass made out of any insect? Technically, it's any insect. I've only worked with the black soldier fly uh, frass, but the frass is really think of it like uh, with earthworm castings. It's the leftover casting or the or the the poop more or less, the, or the compost that's not been consumed by the insect itself. So you will get some dead bodies and things like that in there. But in general, what they do is the larvae is harvested and that is then sold as grubs or as a fertilizer to the industry separate from the frass itself. Interesting. So so I guess I guess my expectation is actually not accurate. It's not like adult 
soldier fly body parts. It's it's their um, it's it's their poop, and then also anything that's left over from the larval process. So I don't know extra extra shells and mucuses and random stuff like whatever's left in the bin. Then, man, what a weird product. <laughs> you know it is, but the the crazy thing about it, for example, the the source that that we use my buddy up at uh, Whistler medical marijuana facility. He sent it off to his friend in Quebec who runs a laboratory and they tested it and found that, and I haven't had a chance to play with it myself yet, but uh, they tested it and said it came back with a higher microbial charge, even than worm castings. So there's a lot of good beneficial microorganisms in it. And that's, that's one of the other things that you have to consider when using a product like this is not only are you getting, you know, the the NPK and the micro and macronutrients, but you're also getting this wonderful, you know, diversity of microorganisms. Right on. That makes a lot of sense. I can tell you one thing. I mean, the adding the insect frass was the only major difference in my last crop. And uh, the depth of green in my plants was unlike anything that I had acquired up to that point. And uh, I, I actually... Um, you know, give a lot of that up to the insect frass. Actually, I bought your insect frass. I bought it from you at, oh. uh, at the, the KIS store. So yeah, so anyway, so that's stuff's pretty good. So um, one thing I want to point out to people when working with insect frass is that um, it's really powdery. It, it gets taken up into the air quickly, like perlite does. And so you either want to handle the stuff really gently or wear a mask because you can get that stuff and inhale it easily and that's that's gross <laughs> you know that's a really good point a lot of the stuff we're going to talk about today probably should be used with a mask in general just to avoid particulate in your lungs at the very least even if it's not something terribly gross so yeah. that's a really good point yeah that's a good idea so all right cool so um let's move on from insect frass to another one of my favorites worm castings and so you know it's it's worm castings is such a an elegant way to say poop right because it casts off what it doesn't need anymore so uh so tell us a bit about worm castings yeah, you know, worm castings are, are, they're the greatest. For an organic gardener, they're probably um, my number one my number one tool. And the thing about worm casting to consider is they're not all created equal. So uh, like you mentioned, worm castings are essentially worm poop. They're usually coming out of commercial facilities or people will have their own uh, vermicomposting bins. And the more the worms process that material that's put into the bin, the better. But there's going to be a difference between worm castings made from, say, finished compost versus ones made from food scraps, for example. Uh, so knowing what went into the worm castings, I think, will help a lot in determining the quality of them as well as how long the worms have worked that material. And I know for us, like we took some of that uh, Ole Mountain Fish compost in these giant 400-gallon uh, smart pots and then we put worms in there and then added some basalt and some calcium sources and some neem cake and a few other ingredients in there and then let the worms work it for over a year and by the time it was done we had a really great worm casting product we were able to use right on that's good so do they normally say on the bags the source of what the worms were eating so that you can judge the quality or do like you know, lower quality ones not mention anything, but the really good stuff it says, yeah, you know, um, or all organic finished compost fed or something like that. They don't. It's not a very good industry in that regard. It's not standardized. Um, 
what you, what you can do on your own to do your own due diligence is you can call the company and find out what they're feeding their worms, what they're bedding their worms in. And then when you look at the worm castings, and this is going to vary based on the type of worms, like African worms, for example, have really big poop. And so it's really easy to see versus things like red wigglers uh, have much smaller poop. But what you're looking for when you're evaluating worm castings visually is it should be a bunch of tiny little dots. If it looks like regular compost, there's a bunch of other you know, woody materials and things in there, then that compost just really isn't um, mostly castings at that point. Whereas it, it should just look like a bunch of little tiny brown or black dots. Well, that actually, that's was good. what I was going to ask you next is that when you're, when you're looking at it, sometimes when I'll buy it, it looks like a bunch of little pellets and sometimes it looks like a really dark compost. And I was going to ask you how you get the, 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 castings out of the compost to sell it but but I'm, what I'm realizing is what you're telling me is that um, they're j they don't remove the castings from the compost the question is how long have they had the worms work that compost so that the percentage of of uh, castings in the compost number is really high yeah, they'll put it through a, a variety of filters or sifts, essentially, that will remove the larger particulate. But you got to keep in mind, a lot of the worm castings that are being sold, the worms aren't being used specifically for making, making castings, but rather for making more worms that they can then sell the worms to you know, gardeners or sell them to you know, fishermen and things like that. So uh, knowing what the facility is really set up for can help determine sometimes the quality of the of the worm castings, but everyone should have their own worm bin. They're super easy. They're very affordable. Uh, you can even just use horse manure as an initial bedding, uh, which is really easy to find locally. So uh, growing your own worms is, is a great option for most growers. Yeah, totally. That's a great idea. And especially if you're, if you're new to probiotic growing, it is an easy um, entryway into uh, starting to play around this stuff that won't cost you a lot of money and actually gives you something that's really valuable for for both your cannabis and your food garden. So right on, cool. So we're going to take our first short break and be right back. You're listening to Shaping Fire and my guest today is Tad Hussey of Keep It Simple Organics. If you grow cannabis with sunshine, you can often feel limited by the seasonal cycle. You want to grow sustainably and save money, so you use as little electricity as possible. But if you haven't studied or implemented light deprivation techniques into your greenhouse, you're leaving a lot of money on the table. By incorporating light deprivation solutions into your greenhouse, you can often add two or three additional growing cycles to your year. When you pencil out the financial benefit of those additional cycles, you'll realize why commercial-scale light deprivation technology is remaking the cannabis industry. What used to be done by pulling tarps over hoop houses has been scaled up over the last few years in such a way that it's become mechanized, easy, and affordable to even small-scale commercial cannabis operations. Forever Flowering Greenhouses is the industry leader in light deprivation, greenhouse design, and operation for the commercial cannabis industry. Their team of greenhouse experts have been in the fields of Northern California for decades, and they're now building greenhouses for commercial cannabis companies across the country. If you are new to light depth and growing in greenhouses, I encourage you to go back to Shaping Fire episode 13 with guest Eric Brandstad of Forever Flowering. I talk with Eric about the importance of intelligent greenhouse management as well as the huge financial benefit of incorporating light depth techniques. There are so many aspects of utilizing a greenhouse that can go wrong. From temperature and airflow to light depth and workflow, Forever Flowering will help you produce crop after crop of well-cared-for flowers. 
They can help you retrofit your existing greenhouse with light depth and other modern systems at a level that fits your budget. If you're just starting out, Forever Flowering can help you plan and build your new greenhouse so that you get started on the right foot. The cannabis business has enough risks without trying to go it alone with your greenhouse. Contact Forever Flowering Greenhouses to partner with folks who have an indisputable reputation as knowledgeable and easy to work with. Go to shapingfire.com forward slash FFG to find out more. While I certainly still enjoy smoking joints, I moved over to using vaporizers about three years ago. The high was a little different than burning the flower, and in the end, I decided I preferred it for daily use, especially because I have asthma. More importantly, though, I could taste my flower so much more. It's hard to express to you how significantly different cannabis with a good terpene profile tastes when vaped instead of burned. I have brought my vape with me to visit growers, and they are astonished by the clarity of taste, and they say they feel like they're tasting their flower for the very first time. The Air Vape Vaporizer from AirVapeUSA.com is a great device to use on the go or at home. When you pick it up, it feels satisfying like a medical device. It isn't flimsy like many vapes are. I like how the flower is inserted in the top instead of the bottom, so it travels a shorter path to my mouth. With the cannabis at the top, I get a hit that feels more substantial, even though I'm just inhaling vapor and not full-bodied smoke. Since I use this vape for flour, hash, and concentrates, I really like that the digital control for the temperature is right there on the front. Three clicks of the button and it fires up to the temperature I specify really quickly and discreetly. You know, vape concentrates are a milder experience than dabbing, but you still get the potency in your hit. Also, the taste is great, as would be expected with a low-temp dab. I love that this vape gives quick little vibrations when it gets to the right temperature. That way, if I'm chatting or distracted while it's heating up, it lets me know when it's ready. If you are ready for a nice pocket-sized vaporizer, consider the AirVape. The new AirVape X has just come out, and it's gorgeous and it includes many updates. You can find more about the AirVape vaporizer at airvapeusa.com. Welcome back. You are listening to Shaping Fire. I'm your host, Shangolos, and our guest this week is Tad Hussey of Keep It Simple Organics. So during the first set, we talked about soil tests and NPK percentages, insect frass, and worm castings. And here during set two, we're going to move more towards the seaside. So, so the first thing I want to talk about is crab and oyster shell. And so there, there, are, there are subsections of both, but can you kind of explain just generally, Tad, why we like shells to begin with? Well, they're very different products. So when we're talking about like crab or crustacean meal, we're talking about something that's going to be high in calcium, but also going to give you some slow release nitrogen. And again, that chitin, the same thing we found in the insect frass, which we already kind of covered. But it's uh, about 4% nitrogen, 1% phosphorus on in, in general. And it's a really good way to get that slow release nitrogen and also encourage that uh, chitinase specific bacteria and fungi. Right on. So, so, so is there a real difference between the crushed shell? Cause like, you know, I've seen it in bags and it's just, um, shell bits versus I've also seen people sell flour and I'm assuming we're not baking bread with it. So, so why does it come in these two different forms? Yeah. And this is a good thing to be aware of across all of these different products and meals. And just in general, when you're adding things into your soil is really the difference between like and we we haven't talked about oyster shell yet, but oyster shell flour versus actual oyster shells, it's really the surface area. So that oyster shell flour is going to be broken down much faster and be more available to the plant sooner than the actual oyster shell. So if you, for example, 
and oyster shells are, are calcium. That's something I meant to mention. So if you're if you want something to be available over a period of a series of months, then you would want to use the uh, oyster shells. Whereas the oyster shell flour will still take some time to become available, but it will be much faster because there's a greater surface area for these uh, bacteria and microorganisms to start breaking it down. Wow, that's a really great idea. So that so getting the crushed shell pieces is more of a time release kind of nutrient, whereas the flour is going to be instantly and fully available. That's really cool. So when choosing between crab and oyster shell, uh, what do you teach people? You know how to come to their decision on which to go with. Well, I just want to touch on one thing, just to be really clear the uh, calcium in general takes a while to become available when added in these forms so when i say more available we're still talking weeks to months in general with calcium um, but that being said if you're looking for a slow release nitrogen source then that crab crustacean meal is really great if you're looking for just calcium then you could use something like oyster shell well all right, but you you would get the calcium with the with the crustacean shell too, right? So why wouldn't everybody just go with crustacean shell? There's is there something special that's unique about oyster shell that you can't get from the crab shell? Uh, no, not really. The, mm. You know, you could. The thing with the crab shell though is you are getting four percent nitrogen, so you would end up with more nitrogen relative to the amount of calcium you needed. I see. And uh, one thing to mention is yeah, oyster shell is primarily just calcium carbonate. And it's a lot easier to get uh, that calcium directly from agricultural lime. They're both mined products, but you can go down and buy a bag of agricultural lime at your local feed store or your, um, you know, any kind of garden center. And it might be, you know, eight to $10 for a 50 pound bag. So really affordable. Whereas that oyster shell flour may cost you, you know, 15 to $25 a bag. So there are more affordable sources for gardeners and farmers. Um, on the calcium side than necessarily using oyster shell flour. Right on. And this will probably come up a couple times today, but is there such thing as, you know, sustainably harvested crab and oyster shell products versus unsustainably farmed? Is this something that we need to be aware of when buying it? Or, or are there just so much leftovers of that from the other industries that um, it's, it's, it's just stuff that would otherwise get thrown away? You know, that's a really good question. I haven't looked into the crab crustacean meal processing enough. I do know it is leftover byproduct of that, you know, the fishing and seafood industry. In terms of the oyster shell flour, I know it's a mined product, just like agricultural lime. They're mining these old ocean beds that are now on land. So they're not any more sustainable than the agricultural lime. So to me, there's not a huge advantage to using oyster shell flour over other lime sources. They're all, they're all mined products. Yeah, right on, right on. So when doing research for this show, I came across a, a, a variety that I've never actually heard before, um, fossil shell flour. And, you know, I'm actually excited to find out what this is because I imagine that, you know, you deep in the earth and you've got, you've got some, some animal that like died near the near the beach and then years of compression and now you've got a fossil and somehow they dig this out what's the story with this you know you've probably already seen it on shelves and heard of it under the name diatomaceous earth oh yeah yeah i have <laughs> yeah they're essentially the same thing uh it's just a legal term uh but really the diatomaceous earth the cool thing about it is it is you know 33 percent silica 19 percent calcium uh it's got some of these trace minerals in it so it has some beneficial uh nutrients and things for your plant 
one thing to keep in mind though is even though it's you know so high in silica only about a quarter of a percent is actually in a plant's available form. So uh, you're not really getting that high dose of silica that you could from other sources. But uh, it also works as a natural uh, desiccant, as I understand it. So when you uh, put it on an insect or use it to top dress your soil and the insects walk through it, it creates little micro cuts because of these tiny diatoms and uh, that will eventually cause them to dehydrate. I've heard a couple different stories in terms of the process but how, of how it works, but that's the one that most people tell me. Um, but it is an effective pesticide in that regard. But once you water it, uh, so for example, when you top dress with it, it's no longer as effective, but yeah, yeah it has a couple different uses. Yeah, I know people who use it for that, for that cutting ability when they're fighting um, uh, soil gnats because I guess, uh, you know, moving around that stuff cuts off their body. Um, would that have the same thing to do for us? Would, should we be using gloves when handling diatomaceous earth? I'm not so concerned about your skin, but uh, in general, you want to wear uh, a, a respirator especially. And then I made the mistake of one time using it for uh, – for not for mites and, and gnats and not wearing eye protection. So actually when I was done, my eyes were super bloodshot and it was kind of like this, Oh, duh moment after I was finished. But at the time it didn't even occur to me. So yeah, you got to protect yourself when using these things, man, that sounds really uncomfortable. You know, that blows back <laughs> into your face. Now it's in your eyes and it's all these micro cuts on your, uh, that doesn't sound good at all. So, so, um, uh, what would somebody use, uh, diatomaceous uh, earth for what is its what's its target usage other than uh, other than um, you know a protectant on the top is it is it also a, a heavy nitrogen fixer you know I'm not seeing a lot of people using it per, it as a particular fertilizer so much as you'll see it in the pet industry for dealing with you know organic flea solution or powder mm -hmm. you'll also see it for dealing with mites and gnats and things like that. But it does add some of these things, especially that silica that will slowly break down over time and, and the calcium. So, you know, people are starting to use it more and more in their soils. Right on. Um, <clears throat> so one last thing on this. So, so if it's fossil shell, how actually is, is it, is it made? Is it, is it really compressed shells along the seashore that they, they go and they mine because it's got, you know, 10,000 years of, of compounded shells in it? Is that really what it is or is the, the name a misnomer? No, you're right. It's these diatoms or, or tiny shells that were left on these ocean beds from, you know, I, I'm guessing thousands maybe hundreds of thousands of years old now that are now they're now on land and mined. So they're, they're, these are mined products still that we're talking about, unfortunately. Right. on. So let's move on to actual uh, fish. So there's a lot of different ways that I've seen people um, work with fish. I've seen, you know, fish emulsions and meal and fish bone and fish compost. And I even saw this old guy here on Vashon Island who just took um, the fish guts from his salmon fishing and uh, just chucked them in the hole that he was about to plant his cannabis plant in and just threw them in there raw. And I'm all like, oh man, I'm not sure if you should age that first or do something. But he said that's how he's been doing it for 20 years and, and he grows great flowers. So I'm not going to complain, but it was, it was weird to see like just the whole carcass is 
put in there. So, so let's start with that. You know, it, can you just as simply throw fish trailings into the hole where you're going to plant? Or in almost all cases, do you want to process that fish somehow um, so it's not just rotting underground? You know, that's an old school gardening move, actually. It's been around for a long time. In fact, I think it dates back to uh, a Native American culture originally. So yeah, a lot of people will do that. Um, I've, I've never personally done that, but uh, I do use a lot of fish products, both in our soils and in my own gardening for a variety of reasons. Yeah. Right on. So what's a fish emulsion? I hear that term thrown around a lot. Yeah, in general, when you see fish fertilizer that's a liquid, it comes in two forms. It's either going to be fish emulsion or fish hydrolysate. And the emulsion, the big difference is the emulsion uses a heat process. So that material is heated up, which can destroy some of the enzymatic qualities of the final product. In general, fish emulsion tends to be a little bit stinkier than fish hydrolysate as well. Uh, but it is going to have a higher nitrogen content. Now, fish hydrolysate, on the other hand, uses cold water processing and typically uh, specific enzymes that break down all the you know, leftover fish bits and carcasses. And then for some silly reason with bureaucracy, you're allowed to stabilize it with phosphoric acid and still have it be considered organic. So you do have a higher phosphorus content than you would in the fish emulsion. So the quick way to tell really quickly just staring at two fish products is if it has a higher phosphorus than nitrogen, it's probably hydrolysate. If it has a high nitrogen and no phosphorus, it's probably emulsion. And uh, both come in deodorized or less stinky versions. So using these fish products, they're still gonna smell like fish a little bit, but they're not gonna be uh, terrible. And one thing that's really important to mention is that fish hydrolysate is actually a really, really good uh, microbial food specifically for fungus. So it will grow great fungal hyphae and compost teas and also help promote them in your soil. Right on. So, so moving along to fish meal, then is that, is that just simply fish ground up? Yeah. As far as I understand, it's, uh, it's literally ground fish, you know, leftover ones that they couldn't, they couldn't use for, you know, up processing. So it's kind of sounds like the, the old school version of just chucking the fish in the ground, but, but in a, uh, a shelf stable package. <laughs> yeah, they do have to stabilize it. Uh, it's literally like a brown powder. It's not terribly stinky. None of the powders are, are nearly as smelly as the liquids in general. But the great thing about fish meal is it's a 10-4-0 and it's a fast release nitrogen source relatively speaking, compared to other nitrogen sources out there. So really what we're talking about by comparing these different fish products is not really the same product in four different packages. We're really talking about, you know, the, the emulsions uh, versus the, um, how do you say it? Hy hydrostate? I say hydrolysate. Hy hydrolysate. I've also heard hydrolysate. You know, I'm not sure what the <laughs> right on the technical correct pronunciation. The, the, the is fish there. emulsion versus the hydro. Um, that seems to be um, you know what NPK you want, and then the fish meal um, takes that and adds the additional variable of how quickly you want it available to the plant. So, so even though these are all fish based, really it sounds like the the nature of the processing has a lot to do with which uh, product you end up choosing. Um, and the last one on my list is fish compost, which, which um, it's an interesting idea because the, the compost that we have where I live, um, I've been told not to put any animal products in it. So, so what, what's the story with fish compost? 
You know, you don't see a lot of it. I We work with one company here in Washington that makes a fish compost. And I think what's so great about that product is the fact they let it age for at least two years before they sell it. So to me, it's not so much the fact they're using fish, which is great, but the fact that they allow that material to be fully composted through static composting. Uh, you just can't beat nature in that regard. But yeah, it's a great product. We find it comes in with a lot of really good beneficial uh, micro and macro uh, invertebrates. And, you know, it's going to be a little bit higher in nitrogen than, than some of the other, you know, strictly food waste or, you know, plant waste compost. But one thing I wanted to mention that I, I forgot to was in regards to fish hydrolysate, that is sort of my go-to bottled nutrient. You know, if you want a just very simple bloom nutrient, fish hydrolysate could replace, I think, a lot of the, the, the bloom nutrients out there on the market as just a swap for a quarter of the price. Right on. That's fantastic. You know, you mentioned earlier, too, that the liquids tend to smell fishier. And for me, um, you know, I would consider that a win. I mean, if it smells fishy, I'm thinking it's got more of the, you know, the active life force, if you will, of the original fish than some of the, you know, overly processed powders, which have lost that smell. I'm thinking that that the liquids are just going to hold more of the essential oils of the fish throughout the process. I'm not sure if I'm right, but that's certainly how I would go when I was buying it. You do get higher oil content, which is great. But the one thing I noticed you, that reminded me of the fact I tested this uh, like freeze-dried or flash-dried fish powder that was carried in a local garden center. And I was looking at it under the microscope by using it as a food source for uh, soil microbes. And I found that I did not get very good results. So it's amazing how different of a microbial food, for example, the fish hydrolysate is than the fish emulsion or the fish meal or even this freeze-dried product. They can really vary across the board. So in general, fish hydrolysate is sort of my go-to for liquid. And then if I want nitrogen, I'll go with fish meal. If I want calcium, you can use something like fish, or I'm sorry, uh, phosphorus, then you can use fish bone meal, which is another fish product while we're on the topic. So so they remove all the fleshy bits <clears throat> of the fish and they just go with the bone. Is that is that so you make a more targeted nutrient? I, again, I think it's a byproduct they were able to make into a fertilizer. Yeah. But if you don't want to use um, you know land animal or mammal-based phosphorus sources, then the fish bone meal is a really good option. Um, I only know of one other non-animal-based phosphorus source which would be soft rock phosphate, but that has its own challenges. So fish bone meal to me is really uh, one of the best phosphorus options out there for gardeners and growers beyond compost. Right on, right. So <clears throat> before we leave the seaside and uh, move inland again, um, let's talk about some guano. So, so you know, people have been using bat guano for decades. And uh, at least in my world, um, seabird guano uh, is something that, that seems to have come um, – more recently. Can you first speak to why people like using these these seaside guanos to begin with and, and then what the difference is between the bat and the seabird guano? Yeah, so people have been using guanos for years now. You hear a lot of old school growers that talk about how the guano is what separates their bud from, you know, everyone else's. And guanos are great because they're good fast release sources of a lot of these micro and macronutrients. Uh, it's one of the great examples, too, of why a soil test is so helpful because they come in a variety of different NPK values depending on where they're sourced from. So you may see like Peruvian seabird guano that has, you know, 10% phosphorus, for example, whereas a uh, Mexican 
bat guano or seabird guano may be 10% nitrogen and no phosphorus. So depending on what uh, habitats coming out can really determine the uh, nutrient content. So there, uh, the guanos will vary across the board in that regard. Now, I'm personally not a huge fan of guanos, and I'll, I'll share why. Uh, in general, it's not a rapidly renewable resource. These caves lose their biodiversity when they're harvested, and that can destroy some of the ecology in the caves. And also, if it's harvested when the bats are present, the bats may not want to return back to that cave to care for their young, or they may abandon that cave altogether. And even though it's a source of economy for a lot of these local and indigenous populations, it can cause a lot of respiratory health problems and other things for the people actually doing the collection. Now, before people get super mad at me, I will say there are safe and sustainably harvested uh, ways of doing that process, but it's impossible to know when you go pick up a bag on the shelf how that stuff has been, has been processed um, without calling the manufacturer and really doing a lot of research on it. So it sounds like guano is one of those things that we <clears throat> really want to know our producer because we want to know, you know, where and um, how it was um, produced. But then also we want to know what the makeup of it is because it sounds like guanos are not, um, you know, you can't just swap them out one for the other. Each one is going to be kind of its own product. Yeah, and the other thing to think about, too, is the microbial aspect of bat guanos or seabird guanos. So some people swear that the reason they love these guanos is because they bring in specific microbes that are really good for bringing out all the, you know, the terpenes in your, in your final bud. That being said, you also have the potential for you know, pathogens like E. coli or salmonella. Uh, there's a specific one to bats called histoplasmosis. That's a fungal spore that is is pretty nasty that you don't want to get. And you know, you had asked me before the show about guanos, and one of the questions you asked was, are there any requirements around microbial testing, like for these pathogens? So I called the Department of Agriculture in Oregon and was talking to the guy, and he said that they don't actually have any requirements for that to register guano as a fertilizer. But there may be some in terms of with the USDA in terms of what they allow you to legally import. I haven't looked into it that far, but uh, be aware with these, you know, with these guano products, you could be bringing in some, you know, potentially dangerous pathogens as well. Right on. <clears throat> I remember. Um, so I had uh, Kevin Jodry from, excuse me, Kevin Jodry from uh, from Wonderland Nursery, Humboldt County, up here to to do a talk a few months back uh, during the summer, all on. Um, how to how to breed for terpenes and he said that one of the things that you have to be really careful about with guano is uh, uh, how much it influences the terpene profile yes it, it'll it'll turn up your terpenes but but it only turns up a spect a particular spectrum of terpenes and he says that he, re he remembers um way back i think he said it was in the early 90s but yestertime anyway um when uh, uh back guano became really popular in humboldt and then suddenly and oddly people's canvas flowers started tasting very similar and people were like hmm i wonder if that's because we've all started using guano and then the 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 overseas manufacturer for the bulk of the guano that was coming to the united states changed and they changed where they were getting it from and then suddenly in one season all these terpene profiles all changed at the same time and they all realized how much using guano was was uh, encouraging certain terpenes and discouraging other terpenes and so for for 
for him, he's all like, eh, I don't really want anything in my fertilizers that's going to artificially, air quotes, artificially um, change the plant. He says, because I want to taste the full spectrum of the plant. So so Kevin went on with things that that he has found that that can be used as a uh, you know as a nutrient, but that wasn't going to spike certain terpenes and not others, um, thus not having the plant properly express itself. And I found that really interesting. Both the fact of of adding products like you know like Terpenator that does that 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 will turn up a certain spectrum of terpenes while not doing the others. But also the influence on agriculture as a whole, as agriculture changes from one nutrient being invoked to another, it will really impact um, the agricultural product, whatever it is. Yeah, and I think it, from an ethical perspective, at the very least, you know, if we're talking about importing these things, they have to have a massive fossil fuel cost just to get into the United States. I think that we can find a lot of these same nutrients in other sources, some of which we've already talked about. I know we're going to talk about some other options too. So uh, I think there's replacements for bat, bat guanos and, and seabird guanos out there that we can find more locally. And I think also a lot of the reason that you're getting these terpene changes is due to the, the high sulfur levels that you're seeing in in bat guanos. So there's a big link between sulfur and, and terpenes. It's already been established. So that's something I think you can play with yourself as a grower if you're doing soil testing is you can you can experiment with different uh, sulfur levels in your soils and see how that expression changes your final your final flower. Right on. So we're going to take another short break and be right back. You're listening to Shaping Fire and my guest today is Tad Hussey of Keep It Simple Organics. As a listener of Shaping Fire, you already understand the importance of living soil when growing cannabis. When you have active microbe communities in your substrate, you go way beyond simply fertilizing with nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium. Having active microorganisms in your substrate supports vigorous plant growth throughout the plant's root zone, making for higher yields and thriving flowers. Mammoth pea is the first organically derived microbial inoculant that focuses on your plant's nutrient cycling processes to release soil phosphorus and other micronutrients from their bound forms, making them more available to the plant. Increased levels of phosphorus will also keep inner nodes shorter and focus your plant's energy on bud production. Not only that, but the microbes act as a defense shield for the plant's rhizosphere by outcompeting potentially harmful pathogenic microbes. Pretty cool, right? Mammoth pea not only unlocks the nutrients in your soil, but it also helps protect your plant from disease. Mammoth pea's beneficial bacteria act like microbioreactors, continually producing enzymes that release nutrients. Mammoth pea was developed at a U.S. university and has been extensively tested by Colorado growers and independent laboratories. Mammoth pea is proven to increase growth and enhance blooming. One of the great things about supplementing with microorganisms is that they won't compete with whatever fertilizer program you're already running. Simply dose on top of your fertilizer schedule for increased benefits. To learn more and to find out where you can buy Mammoth Pea near you, check out their website at www.mammothmicrobes.com. Partner with microorganisms to create beautiful, thriving cannabis. Mammoth Pea. Now that the health benefits of terpenes have become well-known in the cannabis industry, people everywhere are looking for the purest terpenes without adulterants. The problem with most terpene providers is that they're not sourced naturally and instead are made as a byproduct of refining petroleum, and that's so sketchy. The terpenes sold by True Terpenes are entirely different. They are certified organic, non-GMO, and food grade. That means they are extracted from real plant sources. 
There are no solvents of any kind used during the extraction process. They are distilled only with steam. That's right, only steam. In fact, terpenes from true terpenes are so pure that you can eat them. Not only that, but you can stack them with better results too. What I mean is, other companies' terpenes have got a few percent of impurities, and when you stack those terpenes to make a blend, you're adding a variety of impurities that degrade your final product. True Terpenes also has strain-specific terpenes for a wide range of cannabis strains like Durban Poison, Sunset Sherbet, and Granddaddy Purple. True Terpenes has robust and supportive customer service, so your questions will get answered fast and efficiently. If you've shopped for terps before, you know how rare that is. So whether you want to cup your hands to smell some beta-caryophylline to calm down after getting too high, or if you want to dab some alpha-pinene so your lungs feel fabulous and your mind feels liberated, True Terpenes will provide you with a truly natural experience. If you are a cannabis product developer, these are the terps you want to add to your oil or edible or capsule or whatever. True Terpenes are simply the best your money can buy. Don't try and make a premium product with substandard terps. Choose True Terpenes for a top shelf experience. Go to shapingfire.com forward slash true terpenes to find out more or click on the link in this week's newsletter. Welcome back. You are listening to Shaping Fire. I'm your host, Shango Lose, and our guest this week is Tad Hussey of Keep It Simple Organics. So let's uh, come inland a little bit from the ocean shore and let's talk about blood meal. Where does it come from and what are we using it for, Tad? Yeah, blood meal is a byproduct of the uh, meat or slaughterhouse industry. It's literally what you think it is, and it's about 13% fast-release nitrogen. So a lot of gardeners I know will use it uh, in veg as a way of increasing that uh, nitrogen percentage. It's really affordable. It's it's kind of nasty, in my opinion. Uh, you don't want to get it wet and on your fingers, uh, but it is a it is like a reddish powder that you can add into your soil. Is it simply blood that's been dehydrated? As far as I know, yeah, it's pretty much that's uh, pretty much all it is. <laughs> how, how much threat is there for it to carry pathogens? You know, I haven't heard of any issues around it, but honestly, I don't have a lot of growers that I know using it. It's um, it's one of those things that a lot of people have ethical issues around. But I, you know, I've worked with some really good tomato growers and such that would put a small amount in with their tomato starts as a way to get them, give them a little boost. I've always kind of got the impression that it's kind of like a, like an old school um, nutrient, especially with you know lower income farmers. It's it's something that they can afford to use that once dried is is pretty stable. And 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 if you've already got a farm and farm animals and you're going to slaughter them for your family, this is is a ready alternative. Or you know it's it's readily there. Um, is is blood meal moving more out of vogue because we've got other things that that do the same work but with more benefit. You know, it's hard for me to say on like an agricultural level, but I just personally choose not to use it. I'll pay a little bit more to use the fish meal and it's it's not all that cheap either. So it's just something that I I don't personally like to use. I mean, if we're if we're desperate for more nitrogen, um, there's other sources like cover crops and, and nitrogen fixing legumes and things like that or, you know, fish meal that we talked about. Or even alfalfa meal and some of these other plant meals will bring in a small percentage of nitrogen. Right on. Does it matter what the what what type of blood it is, like what what animal, or is it just kind of all the same? You know, I haven't really delved into it. That's a good question. We get a fifty pound bag that's uh, 
full of blood meal and, and I haven't gone beyond that with it, honestly. Right on. Fair enough. So, so uh, while we're on the farm, let's talk about feather meal. When I first read this, I, I mean, I had to go to Wikipedia and look it up because I'm like, is it really feathers? And, and it appears to be yes. Yep. Another byproduct of the um, poultry industry this time. Now, the cool thing about feather meal is it's a slow release nitrogen product. So if you want nitrogen right away, blood meal is going to give you that or fish meal. But if you want something that's going to be released over a period of months, because from an outdoor gardening perspective, nitrogen is something that's leached out of your soil every year when it rains. It it doesn't stick around in the soil. So we have as a farmer or gardener, we have to add it every year. So feather meal is great because you know, you could put it in at the beginning of the season and it'll be available slowly over a period of months rather than all at once right at the beginning of the crop cycle. Right on. And um, <clears throat> it's just, is, it, is it just, is it chicken feathers or is it uh, many different types of birds? Oh man, Shango, I don't, I don't know all these answers. I've never looked <laughs> into that either. Right on. Um, it's just a brown powder. You can't, mm-hmm. you, you wouldn't even know it was feather meal or it was made from feathers. Uh, just looking at it. it has a little bit of an off odor, but it's not, it's not terribly unpleasant. And you know, I think the fact that you don't know as much about blood and feather meal as you know, the other things that we've talked about that, you know, a ton about, I think that probably says something about, um, the, the, the likelihood of people wanting to choose this stuff, you know, it's like it, it, it may be low cost and may have been around for a while. Um, but not only is it, you know, farming byproduct, which you may or may not want to use in your grow at all. But in most of these cases, we've got new and better available things to use. Do you think that's a fair assumption? Yeah, I mean, I do still like feather meal, and I will use a small amount of feather meal, but the blood meal and, and bone meal, I would prefer to use fish products on, and that's just a personal choice. But uh, they're you know, they're out there, and if you have a good, cheap source of them, by all means, you should utilize it. The plant doesn't care. Yeah, right, right, clear on that. right on. So, so I live on an island, and a lot of people uh, like to be self-sufficient and don't want to bring over things packaged. And, um, and I know a lot of people who are into probiotic are very much into being self-sufficient and brewing up their own stuff. And it doesn't take long for people to realize that, you know, the rabbits that they keep, uh, their poop is really great for their plants. And then they start thinking, well, maybe the, 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 the straw filled with chicken poop from the chicken yard would be good for my plants too. So let's take those individually. For people who want to, to you know, derive their nutrients on their own property, um, how good of a choice is rabbit poop and chicken poop? Yeah, so as a general rule, I like to break out uh, animal manures based on what that animal likes to eat. So in general, uh, herbivores tend to be uh, safer composts or safer manures than uh, carnivore or omnivores. So things like rabbits and chickens, uh, those horse, for example, those are all relatively safe. They don't tend to be, um, you tend to be able to use them much, uh, much more readily. Like for example, rabbit, rabbit poop doesn't need to be composted. Now, in general, I like to compost all all animal manures because it re- it reduces or removes the risk of pathogens like E. coli or Salmonella. But uh, people have been using ram- rabbit manure uh, raw directly on their plants for you know generations now without a lot of issues. Now, one thing about chicken manure that you mentioned is chicken manure can can be hot, and when they talk about uh, a source of manure being hot, uh, not only can that be thermally hot as in temperature wise, 
because those bacteria and microorganisms are reproducing so rapidly as they break down that material, that that manure. It's an exothermic reaction which generates heat. And as you may already know, like plants do not like a lot of high temperatures around their roots. So putting that right into the soil uh, can be damaging for the plant. In addition, when they talk about burning, what the other thing that can occur is when you put uh, a high nitrogen source out like that, it can the bacteria and microorganisms can be more efficient at pulling and consuming the nitrogen that is available in that soil. And so what they can do is actually pull nitrogen uh, from that soil more efficiently than the plant, and then the plant can show nitrogen deficiencies even though there's um, a lot of nitrogen in that soil. Right that on. makes sense. Yeah, it does. So running that backwards, it sounds like um, the chicken poop would probably be best, you know, best serve the gardener to to you know rake out the the yard and then you know compost that for a little bit, um, so so it can you know cool out and be a little more stable and use it that way. And then for rabbit poop, um, potentially throw it on there as a top dress. And then and then water over it, kind of like as a time release thing. Do those both sound like reasonable ways to use those? Definitely. And the rabbit poop is a lot easier to collect too, because the rabbits are typically living in cages uh, with you know mesh or mesh bottoms, so that that drops through. With the chicken poop, uh, what we do is we put all of our chickens on um, arborist chips which is essentially large wood chips. So they're really, really high in carbon, So which balances out the high nitrogen, uh, relatively speaking, of the chicken poop. So that will compost right there. It's called a deep litter method for chicken owners, and that will slowly break down. And then after a period of time, we'll remove that sort of composted material and let it uh, compost further before bringing it back in as a, as a fertilizer or nutrient. Right on, the deep litter method. That's really great. Thank you for that, Tad. Right on. So, you know, Tad, while we've got you here, we might as well talk about human manure too. Uh, you know, some people do use human feces with their plants and, you know, that grosses out a lot of people, but the, a lot of the people who use it swear by it. So what say you? You know, I got to say it grosses me out a little bit too. <laughs> uh, I have no problems with human manure. Uh, I just don't like to use it on my edible plants and I would throw cannabis in that category. Yeah. I got to say there was a, uh, there's a funny story. There was this guy on IC Mag a while back that would post all of his food. You know, he was like, I had a hemp smoothie for lunch. And then he would show his plant growing and it was the saddest looking plant. Uh, but it was, it was so funny. All the comments on that thread, it was, it was a, it was a good kick, but you know, honestly, I personally choose not to use uh, human manure just because of the higher risk of E. coli and, and some of these other pathogens like salmonella in all seriousness. So people can do it. Just fully, fully compost the material. That means you're heating it to 131 degrees for at least three days. You know, you're turning the pile. It requires a lot more work to really remove those pathogens. Right on. Uh, we'll leave that for the for the strictly hardcore experimenters. <laughs> so, so you know, we've talked about a lot of the easy inputs today, and one way or the, another, they're all feeding our NPK and and very possibly also our microbe communities. Um, you know, a lot of people like to stick with just using plant inputs. Um, is there anything in this list today that we can't replace with some other plant? You know, I wouldn't say there's anything that's irreplaceable. I do like to use some animal and fish products just because it's a lot easier to get these, uh, especially the macronutrients, the nitrogen and phosphorus specifically in high levels. 
but you are able to pick them up from plant sources. Now, I don't like to take it as far as the veganics guys. You know, a, a plant, uh, an animal will be walking in the woods and die in nature, and then that animal will be consumed by microorganisms and break back down into the soil. And to me, that's a perfectly natural process. And uh, I think it's an important process that we need to recognize. So to me, animal byproducts are not bad. You just need to look into your sourcing of them uh, when you're when you're choosing to use them. Yeah, right on. And you know, this summer is the first year that I got into this stuff at all. And I decided I just wanted to start simple. So I started with insect frass, worm castings, and a liquid fish product. Um, uh, and, and I was really happy with the results. And, and I think that it's a, an easy way for people to get into it without thinking that they have to have all of the knowledge that we went through today. I think you started with three really great products too. Uh, kelp meal would be the other one I would recommend to people, even though it doesn't fit into that poop category. But one thing I forgot to mention about worm castings is if you ever see a plant that's just a little bit unhappy, throwing a handful or two of worm castings in there and watering it in, a lot of times it can correct these little minor minor issues you may have as a new grower. And that's a great way to go. My friend told me that worm castings is the chocolate cake of the plant nutrient world. Just like with humans, no matter what's got you down, if you have a little bit of chocolate cake, you'll feel better. That's how he feels about worm castings. <laughs> yeah, I like that analogy. I would even say it's healthier though, too. So you're not you're not putting on anything that's going to be bad for the plant. It's going to ultimately you know, increase its health, unlike chocolate cake for us. Yeah, right on. Well said, well said. Well, Ted, thanks so much for being on this show. It's always great to be able to have a chance to talk with you and be able to leverage your experience. So thanks you so much. Thank you. I had a great time. I really appreciate it. You can connect with Tad at KISorganics.com. And they're on the KISorganics.com website. They've got a great web store, which uh, um, has all sorts of things for living soil, composting, and uh, things of... Uh, of that realm. Uh, but you can also subscribe to Tad's podcast there, which is fabulous, called Cannabis Cultivation and Science. Uh, there's a place to subscribe right there on the front page. So make sure to check that out as well. You can find more episodes of the Shaping Fire podcast and subscribe to the show at shapingfire.com and on Apple iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. If you enjoyed the show, we'd really appreciate it if you'd leave a positive review of the podcast wherever you download. Your review will help others find the show so they can enjoy it too. On the Shaping Fire website, you can also subscribe to the weekly newsletter for insights into the latest cannabis news and product reviews. On the Shaping Fire website, you will also find transcripts of today's podcast as well. For information on me and where I'll be speaking, you can check out shangolos.com. Does your company want to reach our national audience of cannabis enthusiasts? Email hotspot at shapingfire.com to find out how. Thanks for listening to Shaping Fire. I've been your host, Shango Lose.